Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid, such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. From the podcast team at Qalam. We wanted to wish you a very blessed Ramadan. This month, you can expect daily uploads that will include reflections, khatiras, and khutbas, all from our new campus, Alhamdulillah. If you benefit from this content, please give generously at supportqalam.com. 100% of your donations goes towards the means of providing accessible Islamic knowledge to people around the world. Jazakumullah khairan for listening. Alhamdulillah, we want to welcome everyone uh, to the Qalam campus. Um, see a lot of familiar faces. Maybe um, many of y'all have been here so far uh, in the month of Ramadan or even over the last few months uh, attending different Roots events and seeing the building and the campus overall. Uh, but Alhamdulillah, um, f- since the beginning of the month of Ramadan, we've been um, here in the masjid having daily prayers, tarawih, um, you know, reminders, reflections, um, so on and so forth. And so with the beginning of the last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan, as a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ mentions, that during when the last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan would begin, the Prophet ﷺ would tighten his belt, the Prophet ﷺ would you know, as an expression, roll up his sleeves. And the Prophet ﷺ would put in good hard work into these last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan. So in the spirit of that, um, inshallah, we're going to be having a nightly program here. Um, and we're happy that all of y'all are able to join us. Um, so... Uh, as maybe you heard the announcement or saw online, uh, we decided to pick a theme and a series uh, for these last 10 nights, uh, the program for these last 10 nights, titled Forgiven, uh, where we'll be focusing on stories of the mercy and the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the life of the Prophet wasallam, from the lives of the companions, and even maybe some select stories and reflections from the lives of the righteous uh, throughout you know, the different centuries of Islamic history. 
Um, and uh, typically, on a nightly basis, inshallah, we'll have Ustad Abdurrahman and myself here, inshallah, uh, to facilitate the program. Uh, but, you know, occasionally we'll be blessed and fortunate to have uh, guests and different um, scholars and instructors from Qalam joining us. So, alhamdulillah, today we're graced with the presence of uh, Mufti Kamani. Uh, so, we're very happy, alhamdulillah, to have him with us here. So, we'll go ahead and get started. We sat, um, you know, over the last couple of days and really thought about what stories uh, we wanted to really focus on. And we kind of felt, uh, you know, we all agreed that uh, we wanted to start off by reflecting on and talking about and sharing the story of Ka'ab bin Malik, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Um, so, inshallah, what we'll do with this is that I'll start off by just kind of telling the story. Um, and in telling of the story, what I'm going to start off by doing is just introducing exactly who Ka'ab bin Malik is. And then I'll ask uh, Mufti Kamani and Ustad Abdurrahman to, inshallah, uh, chime in with some thoughts and reflections as we uh, progress through the story, inshallah, bidnillah. So, Ka'ab bin Malik, radiallahu anhu, is a young companion. That's something that is very remarkable about the story. He's a young Sahabi. And he is what we call an Ansari, which means that he was a Muslim of Medina. And he accepted Islam very early on in the Medinan project. If you will, as soon as Islam first came to Medina, he was a very early Medinan convert uh, to Islam. And he in fact was... In some narrations it mentions the very first person on the night of Bay'atul Aqaba Athania, the night that there was a great uh, oath of allegiance that was given to the Prophet So more than 60 Ansari companions came from Medina, met the Prophet and gave him the oath of allegiance, swore their allegiance to him. Um, and he um, was the first one to give that oath of allegiance. He was young, he was talented, he was charismatic, he was dynamic, he was a poet. In fact, his very first interaction with the Prophet ﷺ was the Prophet ﷺ actually recognizing that he was a very well-known poet, that he was a very well-accomplished poet. He was introduced to the Prophet ﷺ kind of unceremoniously. Hada Ka'ab, this is Ka'ab. And the Prophet ﷺ clicked for him and he said, Ash-Sha'ir, you're the poet that I've heard so much about. You're very talented. And he says, I'll never forget the Prophet ﷺ saying that to me. So Ka'ab is a very dedicated companion. And aside from the Battle of Badr, because the Battle of Badr, we talked about it, you know, when we had the Badr program here, but in case somebody wasn't here for that program, the Battle of Badr wasn't originally expected to be a battle. They actually went out from Medina because they thought they were intercepting a caravan. And then it turned, an army showed up and it turned into a battle. So not every companion got to participate in Badr for just that simple logistical reason. Okay, Ultimately we know it's a selection from Allah, but the fact of the matter is not everyone got to participate. So he didn't participate in Badr for that reason. But from there on forward, Uhud, Khandaq, Khaybar, all the other expeditions and battles 
that the Prophet ﷺ went on, that he traveled on, Kaab was always by the side of the Prophet ﷺ. He was loyal, he was dedicated, he was devout, he was committed. And there was no doubt about that. He had no doubts about that. The Prophet ﷺ had no doubts about that. None of the Muslims had any doubts about that. And then we enter into the 10th year of Hijrah. This is the basically shortly before the Prophet ﷺ passes away. There is news that a humongous army of the Romans is gathering at the north of the Arabian Peninsula to basically march on Medina and eradicate the Muslims. And the numbers were rumored to be 100,000, 200,000, 300,000. The Arabian Peninsula had never seen an army that big before. So this was going to be catastrophic. So Allah revealed the verse. Infiru khifafan wathiqalan. Everybody has to go. Every able-bodied male, basically every male between the age of 15 and 65, as long as you're not sick, as long as you are not uh, disabled, you have to go. This was mandatory. Everyone has to go. An-nafilu al-am. And so preparation started. And everyone started making preparations. And similarly, there was a call. Everyone donate whatever you can. Whatever you can. And that's when you had the famous stories. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq basically emptied out his entire account and brought everything that he had saved up. Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu anhu took half of everything he owned and donated it. Uthman bin Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu sponsored a third of the army. There were 30,000 people in the army. He sponsored 10,000 soldiers. Like everyone did everything they could. Poor Sahaba who didn't have, a, have, didn't have two nickels to rub together, they, would, they started working overnight in people's gardens to earn extra money and then brought whatever they earned and donated it. Everybody was giving everything. And so that's what's going on. So that we can understand and appreciate the gravity of the moment. And this is where we enter into Ka'ab's story. And Ka'ab radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, I didn't grow up rich. Overall, the Medinan community was a farmer, farming community. So we were wealthy. We were like dirt poor. We were farmers. But what happened? That at this time, just by the will of Allah, I had never, I had never had as much money as I did at this moment. I never had as much money as I did at this particular moment. I was doing really well. I, my business was doing well. I had extra cash. I had extra animals. I had extra supplies. I was doing really, really well. And that's when the call came. Everybody's got to go. And everyone has to bring everything that they can bring. And I was doing so well that it just made sense that I would have been, I was in prime condition to contribute. But all of a sudden I found myself just delaying. I found myself hesitating. 
And this is the first thing that we can kind of talk a little bit about, that, you know, what happens in those kinds of moments when, you know, uh, all, the, all the resources are available for us to be able to do a lot of good, but that seems to be, ironically, the time when we find it most difficult to do what we're supposed to do. So the, the one thing that comes to mind, and I'll let Mufti Saab, you know, share more wisdom, <coughs> is that um, there's actually one of the books that we read, Nukhbat al-Matloob, the book on Tazkiyah, and um, the scholar was writing, was talking about wealth. And, you know, everybody here has probably at some point or another in their life made du'a for risk, something that's natural. Uh, you know, even some of the du'as from the Prophet Wasallam, obviously they involve risk, you know, they're, they're qualified, of course, with like halal risk and things like that, barakah and risk. But everybody has the concern, especially in our age demographic. So for me, um, you know, in the 30s, Mufti Kamani in the 30s, Sheikh, you know, we'll just... <laughs> yeah, Sheikh played football, varsity football with Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> so no, but everybody is concerned about it to some degree, right? When you're younger, it's about getting a job. When you get a little older, it's about being able to translate that wealth or whatever into like property or assets. And then when you get older, it's about legacy and building up a retirement fund and whatnot. And so it's kind of like never ending. But there was one line that I'll never forget. I'm not sure if you remember. We read it. It was on the commentary. And um, the, the scholar said that, you know, praying for wealth is a slippery slope. Mm. And there was the – a lot of scholars do that. They say, well, if qila – Right? Or if someone says, right? well, if someone responds to this and says, well, what about Omar? You know, Omar used to make dua for wealth. And then he quoted the narration or the athar where Omar would make dua for Allah to give him wealth. So the, you know, the scholar says, well, there is this one statement of Omar, and who's, who's Omar to not be taken as a role model? So then the scholar responds to this hypothetical, this hypothetical contention. And he says, it is true that Omar used to make dua for wealth. That is true. He says, but whenever you look at someone like Omar or anybody else, you can't just look at one action. You have to look at the body of work. So he says, this is the Omar that would give up half of his wealth if the Prophet ﷺ simply asked for it. This is the Omar that would walk in the streets during his leadership and listen to the whispers in the middle of the night, not because he was interested in the tea that was being spilled, but because he was interested in people complaining about him so that he could rectify his leadership and not that he could blame anybody. This was the Omar that, when the Prophet ﷺ described him, said that there will be no messengers after myself, but if there were, it would be Omar. So the scholar who wrote this text said that wealth is a very slippery slope. And he said that if you're going to think about you know, the statement of Omar and say, well, this is a good enough legitimization for me to also you know, thrive, right, and, and, and want to seek out that wealth, then he said, why don't you first start on living the life that Omar lived before you ask for more like he did? And what he was trying to say, the scholar was, just like the story of Kaab, was that wealth reveals ultimately every vulnerability in the heart of the person. You know, they say that money doesn't change you, it just shows who you really are. One way I like to think about money and wealth in particular is that it applies pressure to the structure of your heart. You know, any structure can exist 
freestanding on its own, even the weakest of structures. But when you apply some sort of weight to it, that's when you can see how well it's built. So the heart sits as it does in the chest of the person. And we think that we have patience. We think that we have self-discipline. We think that we have, you know, uh, reasonability with spending. And then we get the stimulus check. <laughs> or and then the tax return comes back. Or something happens. And all of a sudden, you're spending way more on something you never thought you would buy. And you can almost barely recognize yourself. You know, go and look at your bank statement. Look at your credit card statement. And just see who you are. It's one of the truest reflections of the human soul. Because what's hibbun al-mal hubban jamma. Like you love money. We love money. Allah tells us this. So whatever you spend your money on must be something that you either have to or you love. So when you look at your Amazon orders or you look at your bank statement, or your credit card statement, you're going to see a very, very accurate representation of who you are. More accurate than looking in the mirror. Because the mirror you can trick yourself, but on your bank statement you can't. You'll see how much you love food. You'll have to tell everyone how much you cook at home. But you don't, right? You'll see how much you love shopping. You tell everyone that you're really minimal when it comes to your clothing. right? You'll see how much you love whatever. right? I don't watch that many movies. Well, your HBO Max subscription might tell otherwise. The point being is that this experience Kaab is having is not unique to him. How many of us would like to think back to the days of the companions and say about you know, them that, man, if I were in that position, I would have loved to be with the Prophet Some scholars would warn against that statement. They would say, be careful what you wish for. Because just like all of these people's lives were documented and preserved, including their, I don't want to say flaws out of respect for them, but including their human moments. Us, right? You and me, our human moments would also be preserved. And it's easy to have revisionist history about your own self when it never happened. But subhanAllah, Allah Ta'ala didn't test us and put our actions on display for preservation for the rest of time. But when you hear stories of Kaab, you have to think about that for a moment. That subhanAllah, this man was living in the company of the Prophet Sallallahu had a beautiful relationship with him, loved him, I mean, undoubtedly, loved the Prophet Sallallahu The Prophet Sallallahu loved him. But when it came to wealth, it's just too difficult, man. So be careful what you ask for. And when you ask for wealth, make sure that you don't just ask for wealth and stop there. Make sure you ask for wealth and then ask for the ability to control yourself. And ask Allah not for more, but ask Allah for what? Contentment in what you have. Because somebody who's content with what they have, even when they're given more, it won't change them. Right? It won't change them. And that's what you see people. The stories of the wealthy individuals that live their lives indistinguishable from people who are much less wealthy than them. What's so admirable? It's universal. Religiously, it doesn't matter what religion you're a part of. You respect that. The NFL player that drives the pickup truck that he had in high school. It's respectable. It's an article and people love it. Why? Because they didn't change. Because they're content. Their contentment is on display. So that's why we ask Allah Ta'ala for contentment. And that we hope that the wealth that we have doesn't change us. Another point to reflect on from the story of Kaab and Malik, and as we develop the story, you'll understand why we're focusing so much on the first part of it, is that 
Ka'b bin Malik didn't have opportunity earlier in his life, and here he had resources and opportunity presented itself. And his slip-up was that he didn't utilize the opportunity that was available to him. When a person sees, for example, you go to the masjid and you see that someone's raising funds for orphans, or maybe someone's raising funds for you know, digging out wells across the world, there's a point in your life where you think to yourself, if I had, I would give. Is that relatable? Many of us in our teenage years, we would think, man, if I had, wallahi, I'd give. I swear I would give. But then what happens is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then gives, the insan comes up with excuses. Ah, the excuses. So many excuses. Those excuses don't change the reality that in that moment we are, for the most part, not being honest with ourselves. The amazing thing about Ka'b bin Malik radiallahu'an's story is that while Rasulullah is demanding and commanding the companions, give everything you have, we're going up against the Romans, he could have said that the reason why I didn't give was because I was struggling, I had bills to pay, I had opened up another store, I had a mortgage to pay, maybe I had to pay for my college tuition, maybe I had my kids' tuition, maybe I was saving a fund. He could have come up with so many excuses because as human beings, we're amazing at that. We always have a reason. But he didn't. And that's what makes Ka'b bin Malik radiallahu'an's story so beautiful. The dead honesty. Because for him, verses of the Qur'an were revealed. For him, this was a big story. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa when he took the companions and they marched from Medina Munawwara towards Tabuk, which is up north, as they were going, he got delayed. And he said to himself, you know what? I'll catch up tomorrow. It's not a big deal. I have a horse. I have means. I can easily catch up. You know that person that says, you know what, I'll just go to the masjid tomorrow. It's not a big deal. It's only the 21st night. We have four more nights of Laylatul Qadr possibly ahead of us. I'll catch it on the 27th, 29th. Procrastinating. He points this out that this was his big mistake. Because the next day, when that time came for him to leave, he... Um, he began to delay again. That maybe I'll go the day after. And then the day after, he said, I'll catch up. And the day after, he said, I'll catch up. Until a point came where it was too late. People had gone far. Rasulullah was with the companions, and he asked them, where's Kaab? One Sahabi said, O Messenger of Allah, he's coming to wealth. Maybe that's what held him back. Another Sahabi was there and he jumped in right away and said, don't talk to him, don't talk about him like that. And Ka'b bin Malik said, for the rest of my life, I was indebted to that person for defending me that day, defending my honor. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa and the Sahaba, they continued on. When they got to Tabuk, the Romans were a no-show. So they camped out there for a few days. They returned back to Medina Munawwara. When they came to Medina Munawwara, it was a habit of Rasulullah upon returning from a journey that he would go to the masjid first. He would pray some salah there, hang out, people would come and meet him. While Nabi was sitting in the masjid, the hypocrites came one by one to present their excuses on why they didn't join because they had to now see the Prophet and the Sahaba and they needed Nabi wasallam's pardon to socially integrate and show their faces to people. Otherwise, people will say that when we needed you the most, how did you abandon us? Among Arabs, that was the greatest aib. It was the greatest defect in a person that when you're needed the most, you walk away. 
at the time of war, they came one by one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, all those guys that came to get permission, they had no iman in their heart. Most of these people were lying, making up excuses. You know how I talk about excuses? Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was no naive fool. Very intelligent. And, but he knew these people weren't worth the attention. They weren't worth the frustration. They weren't worth anything. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam just nodded his head, go, go, go. Ka'b bin Malik radiallahu an came. He sat in front of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam looked at him and smiled, but it was an angered smile. It wasn't of compassion. Ka'b bin Malik says that in that moment, because remember, Shaykh Abdul Nasser pointed out he was a poet, man good with words, he said, I could have said something that would have convinced Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that I did not do this intentionally and there was no foul play. I could have made an excuse because human beings are very good at making excuses. I could have done it. But I chose to speak the truth. And I told the Prophet of Allah, no excuse. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was not happy with him. When he got up and left People came and said, everyone's giving excuses. Why don't you go back and retract? He said, I won't. I spoke my truth. The thought did cross his mind though. But he said, I won't. I'm going to stick my truth. And that's the sign of a courageous person that when they do something wrong, they don't hide behind lies. They speak the truth. The reason why I don't come to the masjid, in all honesty, the reason why I don't come to Aisha is because of my laziness. I'm not going to blame work. I'm not going to blame school. I'm usually sitting at home in the evening watching TV. So... That's that. The reason why I don't read the Quran is because of my lack of attention. I'm being honest. You have to look at yourself and be honest. Without that honesty, there is no chance of growth. Everything that follows all the difficulties of Ka'b bin Malik that later on become historical and iconic are a result of this man's honesty. That he didn't lie. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa instructed the companions, no one will talk to him. There were three Sahaba in Medina Munawwara who all spoke the truth. One was Ka'b bin Malik an, the other one was Hilal, and the third one, if I'm correct, his name was Murra. Murra. Our teacher used to tell us the... Murara. Murara, sorry. Our teacher used to tell us the acronym of their names is Makkah. Mim, Kaf, and then Ha. So, these three companions were the ones who didn't, uh, who didn't participate. They all spoke the truth. Nabi Sallallahu told the Sahaba, nobody talked to them. This is interesting because on one side we know Rasulullah was a mercy to all of mankind, but on the other hand, he's giving them the silent treatment. Is there a contradiction here? Can mercy manifest in the form of someone being reprimanded and someone being firm? Can a loving person discontinue talking to a person they love if they view it to be beneficial for them? And the answer to this is what? Mom and dads do it all the time. Teachers do it all the time. They put, a, they put a stone on their heart, right? They don't want to, but they have to do it because they know that a part of their love is this hard, tough love too. Ka'b bin Malik radiallahu anh says that I used to come to the masjid for prayer and no one would talk to me. And I used to have a tough time even looking at the Prophet because he wouldn't look back at me. So when Nabi would pray, I would sit next to him and just look at him and enjoy those moments. 
because I know he wouldn't say anything. I could look at him all I wanted to. He was in salah. And he says, sometimes when I would be praying, I felt Nabi was looking at me too. This prolonged for a whole 50 nights. And during this time, there is a report that he says that the Romans actually sent him a message saying that this guy, your friend, has abandoned you. How about you join us? You be our eyes and ears. And together we will deal with this person that's giving you this silent treatment. Betrayal. And he says that my, I was in such a tough place, but I gave no attention to that whisper of shaitan at all and threw it all away. At the end of this period of his, on the 50th night or soon after, it was around Fajr time that someone came and told him that Rasulullah has announced that verses were revealed regarding your forgiveness and glad tidings to you. He said, I took my garment off and I gave it to that guy. And then he came to Rasulullah and he said, when I walked into the masjid, the first person to greet me, I remember him too. He was so valuable to me. And then he said, I met Nabi and I embraced Rasulullah and Nabi then shared the ayat, uh, and so on. So this is a story of Ka'ab bin Malik There are so many lessons in here. On one side, there is a lesson of, you know, what it means to have and not contribute when the opportunity is there. On the second side, we see the lesson of procrastination. Then we see how Rasulullah asked him and his moment of truth. Then number, th- number four, we see Nabi holding him accountable, giving him that tough love. And I think the greatest in all of this, and obviously I'm going to ask the shiikh to share their thoughts on each of these or wherever they feel appropriate, is how Ka'ab bin Malik didn't flake from Rasulullah when things got tough. This is what you call commitment, love, and this is what you call building relationships. Everyone likes to show love when someone is showing kindness and compassion to you. But loyal friends stick with you in tough times as well, through thick and thin. They don't walk away. Ka'ab bin Malik kept coming to the jama'ah. The others were actually praying at home because of their own issues. But he kept coming. He kept facing the community and he kept going again and again. He remained patient. And at the end of all of this, his forgiveness came in the words of the Qur'an. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq. Um, I'm going to pass it back to Sheikh Abdul Nasir to um, share some reflections. Something that's really interesting is, as Mufti Kamani referenced, um, <clears throat> that... You know, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the munafiqun, the hypocrites, when the Prophet came back from this journey of Tabuk, the, the hypocrites, they all came and started making excuses. Oh, I, you know, this emergency came up and there was this medical issue going on and there was this tragedy in the family and, you know, and otherwise I would have been there. And they were making their excuses. They kept making their their excuses. And as he mentioned that Ka'ab bin Malik said, what am I going to do by making a false excuse? Either, either I'm going to lie to him and he's going to, Again, theoretically, he's going to buy into my lie. Then really, who am I following? Who do I believe in? Or, as I know, that 
I'm going to lie to him, and he will immediately be informed by Allah that I'm lying. Because he is the Prophet and the Messenger of God. You can't lie to Allah. So by extension, you can't lie to the Messenger of Allah. Right? So he told the truth, and then that led to these consequences. And for the record, that's why the Quran talks about حَتَّى إِذَا ضَاقَتْ عَلَيْهُمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُبَتْ Right? That the consequences were very severe. 50 days of solitude. To just think about what you've done. A 50 day long timeout. I mean, it is very severe. This is one of the more severe kind of uh, consequences given to anyone in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, amongst the companions. But, these three, Ka'b bin Malik, who was young, Muraratud ibn Rabi'a, who was middle-aged, and then Hilal ibn Umayyah, who was elderly. 20s, 40s, 60s. Alright, so these three. But they weren't the only people. That's what's interesting. Surah Tawbah says there were other people. And There was another group of people led by Abu Lubaba, who was this warrior Bedouin chieftain. Him and some of his people, they lived right outside of Medina. They had a pact with the Prophet ﷺ. They were supposed to go. And they didn't end up going. They kind of they kind of waffled at the last minute. They were newer to Islam. They were very new to Islam. They had barely been Muslim for like, uh, not even a whole year. They had been Muslim for a year. And so they waffled at the last minute and they didn't end up going. When the Prophet ﷺ got back, they also, they also owned it. They said, look, we were supposed to go. We got no excuse. We waffled. That's all on us. We own our mistake. And then what they did was, because you know they were Bedouin folk, country folk, they're a little bit dramatic sometimes, right? And they have their own kind of mannerisms to them. So what they did was they tied themselves, they tied themselves to the pillars of the masjid. And they said, We will not move from here until the Prophet releases us. Right? Very, you know, like a proclamation, very dramatic. So the Prophet ﷺ just let them be. And within about half a day, they tied themselves up in the morning. By the evening, the Prophet ﷺ went and untied them himself and told them, you guys are forgiven. Allah has forgiven you, go. So wait a second. One group of people, these three people, are put into timeout for 50, five zero days, 50 days. Khamsin. This group of people, that some narrations say there were about a dozen of them, they are basically put in timeout for about half a day. Let's just call it a day. There's a difference, right? There's a discrepancy. What is the discrepancy? The second group of people who had to repent and reflect for about a day, they had been Muslim for maybe a year. They didn't live in Medina. They lived outside of Medina. They didn't pray with the Prophet every day. They didn't sit with him every day. They didn't talk to him every day. So they had less in terms of these blessings 
And so there was less liability, less culpability, less expectation of them. Kaab had been Muslim for a decade. He had been by the side of the Prophet ﷺ for a decade. He prayed with the Prophet ﷺ five times a day. He shook his hand every day. He sat with him every day. He walked with him every day. He talked with him every day. So, there was more that was expected of him. There was more that was demanded of him. And this is another very interesting reflection that we get from multiple moments in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, that to whom much is given, much is expected. Much is demanded of, yeah. right? With great power. Responsibility. Oh, Uncle Ben, right? <laughs> so it's, it, but it's true, right? His rice is amazing. Yeah. So if you've been given a lot, there's a lot being asked and demanded of you. So blessings come with responsibilities, and that's another lesson that we learn here. Kaab bin Malik was given a lot, personal attention and love from the Prophet so there was a similar expectation made of him as well. And his other two companions, by the way, Hilal and Murara, they participated in Badr. They were one of the 313 in Badr. They were one of the 313 top Sahaba. Who even the angel said, these people, we recognize their special status. Right? So they were given that status. Similarly, there were similar expectations of them as well. I'll just share one last thing. This hadith, you know, Shaykh Nasser mentioned to me, it's the longest narration in Bukhari. Mm -hmm. So it's a very lengthy story. And part of it that's beautiful is that Kaab is narrating this uh, almost like a documentary. He's telling us what happened and you know, why, it's so, why it's so spectacular, honestly. And he's being very brutally honest. One thing that I want to highlight, and this is a, a point that both Sheikh and Mufti Saab, they alluded to, is that, um, man, dealing with... Dealing with trial is a very difficult spiritual task. Dealing with understanding trial in combination with the fact that human beings don't like being blamed for anything as part of our nature is very difficult. So one thing that I take from Kaab here is his brutal honesty with himself. Now, he's not self-deprecating, right? So he doesn't come and say, like, when the person comes and says, you've been forgiven, he doesn't say, no, I haven't. Like, you don't know, you don't know what an evil deed I've done. No, I mean, when, it, when, when the good news comes, he takes it, right? Like, good news comes, he accepts it. Self-deprecation, beating up on yourself without, you know, just kind of consistently universally is not from Islam. But unconditional, unconditional, universal, constant, uh, you know, self-excusing is also not from Islam. And he mentions here this very interesting line. After everything was said and done, he's reflecting and he says, I've never, I can't think of one person from the Muslims that I can even imagine that has been tested as a result of their true speech in this way. So he understands that the reason why I went through this 50 days, 50 days, and he's praying Qiyam every night. He's begging Allah every night. How many times we make dua for 50 seconds and we're like, what's going on? Right? We open our hands for 50 seconds. We look around. We're like, 50 days he's begging Allah. 
Oh, Allah, please just... And he's going, and he's making effort. There's even part of the narration where he jumps over the, the, the wall, because they had different houses back then, of his, I believe, cousin, Abu Qatada. And he goes to him, and he says to him, like, talk to me. Am I not Muslim anymore? Like, please. I can't... It, it was driving him crazy. Please talk to me. Give me salam. He's walking in the streets, and no one's looking at him. The entire city of Medina is like, right? You know those days where you feel like, man, is someone looking at me? And they are, right? I'm not trying to ruin everyone's paranoia, right? But they are. No, I'm joking. He, he was in that situation. So, so he says, after all is said and done, he's like, man, I've never ever heard of somebody from the believers who's been punished like this for their honesty, which means what? He's owning up to the fact that being honest for 10 seconds doesn't, it doesn't expiate the mistake he made. It doesn't absolve, right? It's part of the repentance process. But too often we're like, oh, I, I'm sorry. And then we expect no consequence, like no reality. No, this is, it's a part of the teskia. It's a part of the, pure, the spiritual purification. And so he says, and then subhanAllah, he says, إِذَا يَوْمِ هَذَا أَحْسَنَ مِمَّا أَبْلَانِي اللَّهُ بِهِ وَاللَّهِ مَا تَعَمَّدْتُ كَذْبَةً مُنذُ قُلْتُ ذَلِكَ لِرَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمَ إِلَى يَوْمِ هَذَا وَإِنِّي لَأَرْجُوا أَنْ يَحْفَظَنِ اللَّهُ فِي مَا بَقِيَ That you know what? Even though my honesty is what got me quote-unquote in trouble, I've never told a lie since that day, and I hope and I pray that Allah will give me the good favor and the protection of never uttering a lie again. You see how he didn't, uh, what's the word? Associate his telling the truth with the punishment he got. He didn't say, oh man, I'm never going to be honest again. Are you serious? Oftentimes, we do the right thing. We get punished and we're like, never again am I doing that. But you find time and time again throughout the Quran and Hadith, people do the right thing and they go through difficulty. They do the right thing and they go through difficulty. Why? Because difficulty is meant to test if you meant it. Did you mean it or not? Right? It's easy to say I did the right thing, but then the difficulty comes and you have to say, well, I really, really did the right thing. Why? Not because I thought I was going to somehow walk out of this scot-free, but because this was the right thing. And no matter 50 days of silence, after that, I'll have a closeness to Allah that can never be replicated. So these are the ideas of redemption. These are the ideas of, of, of how we learn from these stories that it's so important to replicate in our own lives. Uh, we don't want to go too, too long. Inshallah, I know Mufti Saab, mashallah, he's doing a, he just showed up here on the spot. He was upstairs having chai, and then we kind of snuck him in. We're like, just come downstairs. He's like, why? What's going on? We're like, no, nobody's down there. Don't worry, right? <laughs> And we, we asked him to join us, uh, mashallah, and he did. Uh, you know, Sheikh Abdel Nasser doesn't sleep. And this is cutting into the time he doesn't sleep. Uh, I'm just here for no reason, uh, for whatever reason. But Mufti Saab has to go to the Islamic Association of uh, Allen to give another talk right now. Uh, Sheikh probably has to do all kinds of things. Um, and so we do want to thank everybody for coming for tonight, the first night here. And I hope, inshallah, that the reflection was beneficial. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows this moment to be a moment of purification of our hearts and that we're able to keep these lessons near and dear and that these lessons don't fall on deaf ears and dead hearts, but that we're able to hear these things, 
we're able to keep these things and we're able to remember these things because as we know, these nights are the nights of forgiveness, right? More than anything, we hope to be forgiven. And so the, I mean, like anything you pray for, don't be disappointed if you get nothing but forgiveness. That's all you need. These stories teach us that path. How many of us tonight have to own up to our mistakes? How many of us have to be honest with ourselves and Allah? And how many of us have to be sincere to the methodology of truth, even if it's going to be a little bit bitter? We ask Allah to give us tawfiq.